You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Welcome to the Women in Archaeology Podcast, Episode 18. On today's episode, we're discussing feminist archaeology. What is it? Why is it important to look at archaeology through a feminist lens? And how does it impact archaeology done today and in the past? Today's panel consists of Chelsea Slotten, Deidre Black, and Sarah Head. Let's join the conversation. and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast. My name is Chelsea Slotten, and tonight I'm joined by Sarah Head and Deidre Black. Thank you ladies so much for being here. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hello. And uh, on tonight's show, we're going to be talking about what feminist archaeology is, what it isn't, uh, some misconceptions around it, a little bit of the the kind of academic journal publications around it. And I think it should be a really interesting conversation. And before we get started, because I know that there are a lot of feelings about the word feminism um, and what exactly it means. So I would actually like to kick us off with a definition from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary of the word feminism. Do it. What year? <laughs> the internet. The internet. Okay. All of them. So, so I'm going to go with 2017. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it is. So the definition on the Merriam-Webster um, online dictionary is the theory of the political, economic, and social equality of the sexes, right? So that's, that's awesome because it eliminates the gender binary. Yes. Um, nice. So when we say feminist... That's what we're talking about. Yes. So, well, Chelsea, I mean, I since you know so much about this whole feminism thing, what is the intersect of feminism and archaeology then? What's your definition for that? So, it's been talked about a lot and, and spitballed around. Um, the first kind of paper that a lot of people talk about as being a, a feminist archaeology paper, which was actually entitled Archaeology and the Study of Gender, and it's um, a 1984 piece by Conkey Inspector, and it's essentially a, a call to to archaeologists to recognize women as a viable subject, and that's that's really where it started. Women are worth studying; their roles are worth studying. Um, as part of that, there was a, a big interest in recognizing the androcentric bias in archaeology. And for those of you who, who don't know what that is, um, that's basically the male bias in archaeology that sees archaeologists looking at what is viewed as, as more masculine activities because we like looking at political things and, and large monuments rather than the home. It is the use of terms such as mankind to talk about 
all of humankind. It kind of sets up male as the the neutral or the thing against which everything else should be should be measured. But so it's it's important to recognize, I think, that feminist archaeology and, and gender archaeology is really a pretty modern creation. Right? If, if 1984 is, is the first time anyone's talking about it, and then there was a, a volume, edited volume, that was put out in 1991 called Engendering Archaeology, which was done by Margaret Conkey and Joan Giro, which is kind of a, a seminal work. Now, I know that this is the first time that these concepts were maybe seen in writing in modern memory, but it seems to me that studying some of the uh, Victorian female archaeologists, that I do recall several of them willfully using the terms she and proto-woman and primitive woman instead of man. So I, I know that the complaint has been around since at least the Victorian times, but as these were Victorian women and Victorian female archaeologists, like I highly doubt anybody is aware of their work or took them seriously at the time. Yes, so so I think some of it is recognition. I think some of it is also, um, I, I didn't mean to imply that no one talked about women in the archaeological record prior to 1984, because that is patently false. People would talk about women, but it was never engaged with in a, in a critical manner. So when you were talking about women, so much of it was based on modern societal assumptions and expectations of what it meant to be female. Um, there was an assumption of a division of, of labor in the past. There was an assumption that women were uh, working you know, in, in homes and not engaged in politics or warfare, you know, those, those kind of outside of the home activities. And, and part of feminism, as it is applied in archaeology, is that it is a critical archaeology. Um, it wants to look at the evidence that we're looking at, our, our objects, our artifacts, and analyze what they mean while trying to remove modern biases because talking about people who lived hundreds or thousands of years prior to us in, you know, different cultures, different regions, different geographic landscapes, different technology. And there's there's not really any reason that we should just automatically assume that their social structure was the same as ours is. Right. But we have to look at it without getting into the pomo funk. The, the, the pomo funk? Uh, Postmodernist uh, archaeological theory says that you can never truly know the thoughts and motivations of another. You can try and understand, but you'll always have your own biases, your own thoughts, your own uh, sort of cultural structure that you're viewing it from. And then you get the, well, I can never understand them, so why should I even bother? Blah, 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 until you just get into fuck of why even bother and this is why i hate postmodernism right but it does it does introduce the idea that we should be aware that you know they viewed themselves as a different lens than we're viewing them through and just be aware of that bias and i think there's things. a lot there's a lot of merit there too and it this totally comes back to the whole um feminist archaeology thing i just yeah have too many people with the postmodernism who are like, but how do you know what you know? And you weren't there, so how can you possibly blah blah? I guess it's the the pomo funk that you're talking about. And it's 
aggravating right. to deal with. So. Well, it's just like having a, a culture and archaeology, you know, ribbing each other. Well, you know, I can talk to my people while my rocks don't lie. <laughs> you know? My rocks don't right. lie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but our interpretations of them might. Right. Correct. Right, right. Um, I would almost say that uh, feminist archaeology uh, can really be explored much in the way as third wave feminism, and that these ideas existed. People were talking about them and shouting them for as long, you know, as Western thought's been around. But it around the same time we start getting the feminist archaeology is the same time we start seeing the ideas of third wave feminism really mesh and become like a cogent thing that we can analyze that we can think about that we can go oh hey this yeah back in the 80s yeah the 80s and into the 90s like you start really getting this coalescence in the 80s and then you start getting definitions in the 90s yeah I, i i agree with you that far because i i personally feel like there was the fourth wave feminists fourth wave really kind of started in the late 90s early 2000s so like that's why i wanted to clarify time period there but yeah, I, I can totally see the the argument you're making there about the whole coming up together kind of thing. Right. Because, you know, first wave archaeology is... Women are human... Archaeology, I'm sorry. First wave feminism is uh, women are people. Right. Right. Second wave feminism is a woman is as good as a man and can do anything a man can do. Right. And, but we're still defining it by the man. Right. By that standard. But third wave is just like, you know, women's work is valid, men's work is valid, men and women can both do these works and they should not be defined by these works. Third wave feminism definitely opened up a lot of things. I I also think in addition to kind of like the crystallization of the the feminist movement, archaeology is is well known for pulling some of our theory from anthropology or or sociology. And I think in, in some ways it's a really big strength of the discipline. But that often means that sometimes people fall into the trap of thinking that they cannot have their own theoretical leanings, shall we say, until someone else has come up with it first. And if we're right. taking this, this 1984 article by Conkey Inspector that is widely considered to be kind of the start of the feminist archaeology or gender archaeology movement, uh, and then look at what anthropology was doing a decade ago. Uh, you're getting Sherry Ortner and the first name is Marion, but Whitehead's articles on, uh, you know, man the, the hunter, woman the gatherer, uh, the, the gender bias in anthropology. So mm-hmm. there have been about a decade of, of feminist anthropology going on um, and theorizing yeah. around that that we could pull from for people talking about. Uh, a feminist archaeology sort of apply it to the living and then apply it to the dead yes well and that's reasonable i mean you can develop a theory from observation and then see if it applies backwards the trick is though i think is being able to recognize when it doesn't apply and being able to adjust it accordingly or abandon it if it doesn't work right well that's with anything you know you have your pet theory it's really hard to abandon. Yeah, and I mean, that obvious evidence guys. that it's incorrect. This is the thing that I believe in. I've studied it. 
my personal bias has put me to where I think this is the one true way. And even with other people seeing the evidence, it can take a long time for you to see that evidence. Right. And what were you and saying? realize that you need to change it. Yes, it's the scientific method. Amazingly, it works. <laughs> Crazy scientific method. Self-correcting. What are you talking about, science? <laughs> well, I mean, just to throw some shade on things, one of the, one of the, I guess it's a, I guess it's a feminist theory. It may not actually be, but the whole um, prehistoric goddess worshiping culture that does not exist, but was mm -hmm. a big buzz uh, during the, I want to say during the early formidable period of the development of the field. I mean, it's a cool idea. It would be amazing if there was such a thing, but to date, we don't actually have any evidence to support a culture like that. Um, nope. But, but boy, does popular culture love it. Yeah, exactly. But it's it's one of those theories that just won't die kind of things. And I don't know. I guess I was just using that to illustrate my point. Yeah, I mean, I, I think those theories that don't die can be frustrating. I actually almost want to say that I, I like that, that that particular theory that other theories kind of float around and that people ask questions about it and think about it critically because it does get you to think about it you know and and obviously if something is wrong you need to you know if there isn't evidence for it and granted absence of evidence is not evidence of absence but i think going back to the, the postmodernism, can we really ever know what other people were were thinking the answer to that maybe no but i don't see that as a reason to to give up but more of a reason to look at things from as many different angles as possible and sure i have biases i will really claim to be a feminist archaeologist uh, and that is going to influence my work but if you get people coming at it from all these different sides and all of these different angles we might actually be able to get somewhat closer to the truth right i'm not saying that uh i wasn't using that as a slam on feminist archaeology i was just using that as a thing to point out that you know sometimes just because there's goddess worshippers today does not mean there were goddess worshippers in the past and the artifacts that are being used to support that idea are not necessarily yeah that I mean the postmodernism comes in there we don't know what these objects were we're assigning our own values to them for all we know they're not even goddess figurines but we've just decided to call them that kind of thing um but yeah i'm not trying to say that we shouldn't look at the past in as many different angles as possible obviously that's going to get us the biggest possible picture that we could have from a time period that we have no ability to really know about you know yeah i didn't think you were suggesting that i just and i don't want anybody well, listening to think i was oh and i would like to i would like to think that some of uh, the modern feminist ideas that you should always be reanalyzing your position uh, mm -hmm. also fits in with feminist archaeology. So in modern feminism tells me I should always be looking for my own biases against people of, you know, other races, under genders, under other sexualities. You know, it's not a light switch when you go, oh, that's racist. You can go, oh, that's racist, but then you don't realize that there's all this institutionalized cultural racism that you've absorbed. And so it's really, it's a constant, oh, there's a piece of glitter, flick it off. Oh, there's a piece of glitter, flick it off. And I'm constantly going, well, wait, why did I do that? You know, as a feminist, 
And I think that's part of what the modern feminist thought is. And I think the same thing helps feminist archaeology not get stuck if we can remember to keep doing that. It's like, you know, this is what we thought at this time based on this evidence. Has there been new evidence since then? Has new theories come out? You know, just trying to not get stuck. So uh, is what you're saying then um, that we should not only acknowledge that we have a bias about something, but try to examine where that bias is coming from? Because otherwise I feel like you're just going to keep repeating that bias. Even if I catch right, myself yeah. doing something, if I don't know why I'm doing it, I'm probably just going to keep doing it. Right. Um, so that's part of why I like that American archaeology is the four-field archaeology, you know, the four-field linguistic, physical archaeology, you know, four-field anthropology. Because mm -hmm. um, you've already got that uh, personal basis of looking at something from multiple views. You know? Well, if you were you know, trained in the four-field method. And so, yeah. you know, oh, I have this bias. Why do I have this bias? Oh, because my mother had that bias. Why did my mother have that bias? Because her mother had that bias. Why did her mother have that bias? Because the pan was too small. I don't know. Because the pan <laughs> was too small. No, that's an excellent That's an excellent story, actually. I, I know that one. I get that reference, but yeah. Uh, for people that didn't get the reference, it's uh, an old story that's told you know, to always examine why. And it is, you know, the lady was teaching her daughter how to make the, the leg of lamb for Easter. And she cut, you know, two inches off the tip, put it in the pan, put it in the oven. And her daughter asked, well, why'd you do that? And it was the first time her mother had even considered, why did I do that? I've always done that. Mm -hmm. And she's that thought about it. She's like, well, my mother always did that. And she goes and asks her mom, she's like, mom, why do we cut two inches off the end of the of the Lego lamb. She's like, her mother's like, I never thought about that. It's just what we always did. And so, you know, she asked her grandma. Her grandma's like, because when me and your dad first got married, the pan was too short, so we cut two inches off of it so it would fit. <laughs> yeah. And then that's a perfect example of why we should examine things. It's A, examine you know, our own you know, biases and ask as many questions as possible. Right. Why? You know, I uh, think a lot of us uh, were the kid that had trouble for asking why and never stopped. True. Well, and, and a lot of feminist <laughs> archaeology is not just critical of non-feminist archaeology, but it is also a, a self-critical, right. um, you know, like subfield sub of, of archaeology, which is good because if you're not self-critical, you're never going to progress very far. True. And I think most of us yeah. are in here to, to kind of stretch the boundaries of our knowledge. Yeah. I mean, the interpretations of, you know, sites and cultures that I've always been drawn to, the ones that I liked, is like, it is, okay, this is this. We think it because of this. And we, you know, compared it to these other cultures and this pattern of artifact distribution you know, explanation upon explanation so that, you know, in the future we can look back at it and maybe that theory was wrong, but we know how they got there and then we can reinterpret it based on new data. All right, well, yeah. 
let's go to break real quick and when we come back we can maybe look at how feminist archaeology works uh today would you like to get more involved with archaeology are you looking for volunteer or internship opportunities are you already working on community or personal archiving projects and could use some helpful hints check out the ideas portal sponsored by codify visit ideas.codify.com a free and open community tool and share your ideas, knowledge, and advice on select topics that will lead to vibrant opportunities and initiatives for all aspects of archaeology, from fieldwork to public service. All ideas are welcome, so visit ideas.codify.com today and make your voice heard. That's ideas.codifi.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. Today we're talking about uh, feminist archaeology. In our last 20 minutes, we talked a little bit about the history of, of feminist archaeology. And we're going to segue a little bit into um, what is feminist archaeology today, which can be uh, in some ways a little bit harder to, to define. I know that there's, there's still the, the underlying groundwork of um, you know, quality of of the sexes but intersectionality is a word that's that's being used a lot more and the recognition that you know not all women had the the same experience your race your uh, socioeconomic status your class your religion could all you know, greatly impact how you as a as a female experienced life in the past you know so it's there, there has definitely been a recognition that there are different types of experiences within cultures, which, which makes it harder to pin down and say, you know, this is like the one thing that's true. But I think that's true for a lot of archaeology. Well, I think that's sort of a phase feminism is in right now as well. There's a lot, there's been another turn to look inward and examine the movement itself. And mm-hmm. so I think that's being reflected in in feminist archaeology and anthropology as well we're asking yeah. why again well and it's 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 healthy for we're a get movement. To the other side answer yes yeah it's healthy for a movement to do that i mean that's a sign that it's not stagnant i think it's a it's a healthy sign of a movement that it questions itself because it means that it hasn't gotten stagnant that it's it's growing and it's willing to include others in it that it may not have thought of in the past and I think we are, I think we can definitely point to that in feminist archaeology. Um, I don't know when the book came out, but I know that there's a book called Black Feminist Archaeology, which is definitely on my reading list now that I'm aware that it exists. Mm-hmm. But right there's a, it's an interesting statement. Like, I am a feminist and I am an archaeologist, but if you were to ask me about feminine, feminist archaeology, I, I don't really know where I would start you at. So I think, Oftentimes, when you um, when you get into feminist archaeology, we have the, the two books um, or the two articles that were mentioned last time: the book "Engendering Archaeology" and the, the 1984 piece by Ankian Spector. In terms of more modern um, things, it really diversifies a lot. You've got uh, people like Pamela Geller, who is a is a bioarchaeologist. She just does, does some really, really fascinating work with uh, like heteronormity and body images and, and bodyscapes. That's that's wonderful. You've got uh, 
Barb Voss, who does an archaeology of, of sexuality that, especially earlier on in the in the earlier 2000s, when she was kind of coming up with that, pulled a lot from from feminist theory. You also have people. Uh, there's a woman. Her last name is Sorensen, mm-hmm. who's actually come out and pushed back a little bit against uh, feminist archaeology, saying that you you should be able to do a gender archaeology that isn't inherently feminist and that isn't trying to upend the, the vision of the past that's so male-dominated. Um, I don't put a lot of feminist pieces that aren't trying to you know, pull the patriarchy, and I think that there's some, some of the negative connotations that people have with the word feminism uh, can, can make their way into what we think of feminist archaeology, regardless of whether or not the literature supports you know, the idea that that feminist archaeologists just topple the patriarchy in the past. Like, I don't think they're trying to do. But so, so those are some some interesting ones to read. Um, uh, can I play like devil's advocatey kind of thing? How is how would so the study of the archaeology of sex? Is that what she was doing? Uh, Barbara Voss does the archaeology of sexuality. Yeah, of sexuality. So, I mean, how is that a feminist topic uh, for archaeology? Like, how does that become a feminist topic? Is it because it's looking at sexuality? Or is there some deeper underlying trait that makes it feminism? Um, I think a lot of where the, the association of archaeology of sexuality with feminist archaeology comes from is uh, some of the theory that, that Barb Voss calls from her in her early work is a feminist archaeology theory. Um, so that's kind of why it's it's been subsumed, or at least that's my understanding. I will admit that it's not my my area my area of expertise. Oh. But like one of uh, Barbara Voss's first pieces, which came out in World Archaeology in two thousand, was entitled Feminism's Queer Theories and the Archaeological Study of Past Sexualities. And, uh, I mean, the, the entire piece kind of pulls together feminist and queer theory to, to make an archaeology of sexuality and to, to talk about it more. Well, a lot of uh, modern feminism includes, you know, smashing the heteronormative. Right? Yeah. It's part of that, it's part of that intersectionality. Pizza rolls, not gender rolls. And that goes down... It goes down to your your sexuality because our sexuality um, and our culture can often be defined by our gender and who's allowed to partake in what or view someone else's you know as part of that. It's, it's part of the intersectional. I am so sorry. <laughs> it's, part, it's part of that intersectionality that we are all people, no matter our gender, our sex our sexuality, our race, our abilities, we're all people. And I'm, I, I guess I just want to come at it from a different angle then, and I'm, I'm really not trying to okay. say anything bad. I'm just, right. yeah. um, how is that then archaeology? Like, I get well, how that's feminism, but how does that become archaeology well, it's, then? It's, it's part of the interpretation. Because very often, you know, you'll have two people in a grave together and if they're of 
if they've been interpreted as different sexes, they'll be like, oh, this is a couple, they love each other, da 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 da. Right. Or if it's two guys, and they are buried with what every other, you know, differently sexed people are buried with as a couple, we'll still see, oh, it's just guys being pals. They right. They've been bestest friends. As you guys have been talking, I pulled out, um, I have a the gender, culture, and power reader uh, from one of my, my classes. But um, the... The title, the chapter is called The Gender of Brazilian Transgendered Prostitute. And it's talking about the how gender is constructed in this particular area of Brazil and talking about how gender in, in this particular, you know, situation that they're talking about is not really grounded in the biological sex of the individual, but is more grounded in its sexuality as either those who penetrate or those who are penetrated. And in, in that way, away from an understanding of you know, like feminism uh, and, and gender and this is being strictly binary along biological uh, in which case if you're expanding your, your kind of idea of, of woman to be a gendered category of someone who is penetrated then the sexuality of the person in question becomes very important and you also will get some representations in iconography yeah, the, oh, there are all those, the moche, M-O-C-H-E. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a bunch of I love of the moche pots. Yeah, that's, yeah, the moche pots. They're very detailed and show, you know, a lot of, of sex between men and women and men and men. And a lot of them show anal sex, which you, you know what it is because there's a very, very, you know, clearly defined uh, vulva on the, you know, on a woman if it's a woman. So those are all, all things to consider as well and then with the moche we have in, in burials the people on the pots mm-hmm. they were in the, the same exact regalia as the people on the pots yeah i've heard a lot about the moche pots and they're yeah yes <laughs> if you've not yes. seen the moche pots you should look them up they're interesting yes. i i will warn people that there are some fraudulent pieces out there so just be wary of where yeah. you are looking and if you're going to look for them you should expect to see some images and if you don't want to look at genitalia maybe don't look them up yeah no pearl clutching after this you were warned (laughs) yeah yeah same same goes for effigy pots uh coming out of the the proto-aztec there are many collections in from texas to mexico that were put in the back room of the museum because they are three-dimensional and graphic so you know and so you can also try and think oh no were these acts acceptable in that community was it not accepted in that community and was an aberration it's just it's a way to get a to try and think of a fuller picture of that culture one that i i've been starting to see more out of is uh differently abled persons in the archaeological record things that we would classify in our culture as a disability and how they were viewed. We're also seeing this in anthropology as well. And then how they're treated by their culture. You know, are they buried differently? Did they live, you know, a standard life? Did we find images of them in iconography as other or not? Stuff like that. You know, like we have the, the that amputated walking toe in, uh, in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Which is really neat, you know. That was something that 
we would classify as a disability, although a rather minor one. There are several places where people with physical features uh, associated with uh, Down syndrome are buried in a manner that suggests that they were no different than any other member of society. It wasn't thought of as they they weren't different. They were just a member of society. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, in anthropology, in anthropology uh, there's some really great studies going on about how your culture affects how mental illness is experienced by the mm. person. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard about that. Especially in, like, the areas and, of um, depression and... Um... Oh, and schizophrenia. One of my... Yeah, because I mean, schizophrenia has some biological markers. Yeah, I mean, mental illness is not quite as easy to tell on the archaeological record. But again, I think a lot of this thought is just getting a fuller picture of the culture, and everyone is a full person, is a member. There is no default. They are all contributors to the culture as a whole. And a lot of that, you kind of tie it all back into the intersectionality and like. This is where I was talking about the borders are getting less defined. There was a, a really cool piece last year, um, an article by Alexis Poutine. It was called Exploring the Social Construct of Disability, an Application of the Bioarchaeology of Personhood Model to Pathological scale, to a Pathological Skeleton, Ancient Bahrain, which is like a mouthful, I understand. But where they were looking at... Uh, a particular female skeleton who was found with some some bone abnormalities that you know indicate disability, but she was also found in an incredibly rich grave um, compared to a human being. Um, so, you know, what is what does that intersection tell us about? Is her gender more important? Is her uh, physical difference more important? Is the class that she came from more important? I believe they did some isotopic analysis, um, and she had a, had a rich diet as well. So, so as much as we might want to say, well, we can interpret this particular grave vis-a-vis uh, individuals' gender, personhood, and what makes up a person is so much more multifaceted. Than just one aspect, uh, and that there isn't one right answer. Right, and that's why I, I was asking, like, um, how we see feminism and archaeology intersect today. Because back, back in the past, quote unquote, you could say anything that's claiming, "Hey, we should look at things from through a woman's eye." You could say, "Oh, that's feminist theory," but in today's well, in today's atmosphere, I mean, feminism seems to incorporate a whole lot more than just, but what about the women? You know, it, it incorporates gender and sexuality, and it also incorporates basically anyone who seems to be marginalized. And also, you know, don't just think that because you've picked up like a, a flint napped object that that means a man made it. Or if you pick up a pot, that women made it. You know? I, I think some of this this runs into uh, the muddiness of language, especially English. This is, you know, the, a lot of the intersectionality movement incorporated a lot of feminism and feminism being drug into intersectionality. But we have this word, feminism, and a lot of people get hung up on the fem 
part of it, you know, the right. female part of it. And it's a term that's changing meaning, even though people are still getting hung up on the femme part. And I think that's where we run into it. I had a similar issue when I was uh, working on my thesis and the, the theoretical structure I was using. Uh, I could have said they were using organizations organization style A and organization style B and there is a statistically significant change from A to B as as the climate changed. Um, unfortunately, because there were 50 years of people using this theory before me and most importantly, you know, the man that took the A out of archaeology who is labeled <laughs> labeled <laughs> one of these uh, forager and one of these gatherer. And it's really problematic that we have, you know, I, I actually spent almost a whole page saying, you know, we have this one called forager and this one called gatherer, but we should really just be calling them A and B because those two words imply a lot. But because I'm referencing all these other people's works, I'm also sort of stuck with having to acknowledge these two terms as the two organizational styles. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's annoying. And eventually we'll get to the point where we can just say archaeology. And eventually we'll get to the point where we can just say people. We're not there yet, and the language is having a hard time catching up to where we are. Yeah, so let's take a, a quick break. And maybe when we come back, we can talk about the importance of maybe doing some feminist archaeology and, and how it can help accomplish some of the things that you're trying to accomplish, Deirdre. This is Christopher Sims, host of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. It's a show geared for early career archaeologists where I bring interviews and casual panel discussions about the challenges and opportunities that many archaeologists encounter starting off. So, if you're still in school, thinking about going back, just getting started, or want to take the next step, you'll find what you need to go dig a hole. Tune in every other week on the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hi everybody and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology Podcast. Today we're talking about uh, what is feminist archaeology, and we're going to move into why we want to use feminist archaeology and why we think it's a useful tool to, to be applied today and, and how it can help us better understand um, the past, as, as Deirdre was talking about before the break. So I will admit, I've, I've seen some really great feminist archaeology pieces come out, you know, in the, in the last couple years but like like any theory uh you know it has its, its peaks and its uh, troughs you know sometimes it's popular sometimes it's not i've also seen a lot of work come out that either completely ignores the fact that we now have three three years of gender archaeology feminist archaeology work being done or there'll be like a, a token like tip of the hat to <laughs> to the to feminist archaeology without actually really engaging with any of it which 
kind of results in people doing the same sort of here are my modern biases and I'm just going to do this because it's easy. I like to think of that well, as like academic name dropping. It's like, oh yeah, and then there's some feminist archaeology. But back to the thing I was talking about. Well, just like we talked about earlier, unless we examine our own biases, we're like repeating them. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, I mean, we're we're still getting things that say spear equals penis equals man. And I right, love when know. we see articles that's like, oh, well, a burial has been re-examined and the bones have been determined to be female, but she was a female warrior. And I'm like, why does she have to be separate? Why is this special? Like, why? Right. Why is she now something greater than female? Because she also she is female and happens to have male associated items. Now suddenly she's important. It's like. If it was just a woman in a grave, that's not good enough for you? Right. Well, it just goes to show that we're still valuing typical or what have been assumed to be typical male pursuits, because I I don't think there's any such thing as a typical male or a typical female pursuit. People like different things. I would say a lot of things that have been interpreted as masculine. Yes, exactly. That is exactly what I was going for. But, But those are the things that we're still valuing. Um, yeah, let's look at this war. Let's look at this giant phallic stila. Let's <laughs> the spear. Let's look at the shaman who's been drawn on the wall for the umpteenth million time who has an erect penis. <laughs> because penis. Yeah. I'm shouting in the middle of a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> and oh yeah, let's assume that all the penises are men. And then there's that too. Like you know, but when we're going as far back as the the petroglyphs of the uh, shaman, we have no. Yeah, I guess if we're no, we don't. So. We sh- we really should be saying the shaman is depicted as a person with a penis, not the shaman is a man. Right. Right. And there's a, a site in South America that is the name of which is escaping me as the uh, precise location, which I apologize. So, so they were finding. Burials and so, with so stingrays finding, in them. Yeah, so they were they were finding um, burials that had like the stingray tail spines. Uh, it's a bony structure in them, as well as uh, seeing some some iconography from that area that also um, you know showed these these stingray spines. But they were oftentimes um, shown. In around through the the genitalia um, and the the current kind of prevailing theory on that is that like through piercing part of your genitalia with one of these you could ritually take on the other the other gender you were like in effect killing either your penis or your vagina um, temporarily so that even if you had a penis if you needed to engage in like female ritual activity or if you had a vagina and needed to engage in male ritual activity there was a means in that society through which that could be easily navigated and negotiated so then you also have these people who you know 80 90 95 percent of their life whatever um you know and i'm spitballing numbers this the piece that i'm thinking about did not have any numbers associated with it but you're saying for example Right. For example, you could spend some percent of your 
um, your life as a female in the society in which you're living, but then also spend some other percentage of your life as male as necessary. So then you have individuals who can inhabit both roles in the, in the past. And how do you figure out what was part of the, the masculine? What was part of the feminine? Was it all part of a whole? Did that society really see that there was a difference? Uh, it's so... And, and if they did see a difference, you know, could all masculine people inhabit the feminine? Could all feminine people inhabit the masculine? Or were there other genders that were... Were there other genders? Was it only the upper class who could go back and forth? Uh, or only specific people? Right. 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 Now, how now, do we... We know, we know now today that there are, are many cultures that have far more than two uh, recognized genders. Yeah. Right, right, right. When the Spanish first came over and started subjugating the Native Americans... Um, they're like, what? Yeah, they recorded that there were multiple, what we would recognize as gender roles now, uh, beyond yeah. just male and female, and it really disturbed them. But I mean, we do have we do have documentation that even up to first contact, there were still cultures that practiced multiple genders, not just a binary. Right. Which is why we shouldn't find it so weird today. Correct. Right. <laughs> but it's all what we've normalized as society. Yeah. Right. Mm. And that that's one of the things that we have to go why? Yeah, exactly. So why can we trace back normalization of the binary in the archaeological record and the historical record? Well, we could certainly trace when it was lost in some cases. Yeah. But I'm not going to go on so, that sometimes rant on the show. Rather, sometimes rather dramatically. <laughs> right. Suddenly. I think the word you're looking for is forcefully, but yes. Colonially. <laughs> Colonially. <laughs> Huge impact on all of this. Um, right, and should always be considered in conjunction with everything else that we're supposed to be considering. Well, I mean, you can almost say that colonization is a feminist issue, though, because it's, in most cases, colonization led to a destruction of native perspectives, of culture, of norm, and introduced a more male-centered um set of norms into a culture and a society and i mean that's and i would be... say in some cases a much more rigid yes gender structure exactly i mean i don't want to get on a soapbox but <laughs> we're gonna get on a soapbox <laughs> but since i'm up here um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i mean so you could say that the the whole studying of colonization and the and the archaeological evidence and historical evidence thereof is also a feminist issue because you can literally track things to that point and then everything changed and then we have what we would recognize yeah. as our modern society coming out of that i mean all you have to do is go to your nearest powwow i go to a powwow you know with the people and we always start with god yeah mm -hmm. i'm always surprised and it's very much and it's very and it's definitely recognized as the judeo-christian fluffy cloud god fluffy cloud. Um, some people have started to you know reclaim the old ways um, as best as they can with, i mean that's the best, problem as, be as best as they can with this structure right um much like uh catholicism in in a lot of latin culture you see the the marriage of the two cultures uh, just expressed in this particular clothing, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But, and it's still one of those things, I, I, I almost get sad every time I am at powwow, whether I'm in the audience or if I'm dancing, you know, oh God. And I know for the people praying, like, they believe, but I'm just like, man, what would this have been if that wasn't forced on us? What would we be saying? I don't know. Right, so how much of um, the... How much of feminist archaeology uh, intersects with basically the archaeology of religion? Well, it's all connected. It's that intersectionality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, your your identity as as female is never just you know female, sex, gender, sexuality, race, uh, class, socioeconomic, religion. You know, and they all provide slightly they all inter- slightly different. They all intersect, and we must acknowledge all of them as contributing right. factors and i think that's what feminist archaeology is really about is you know recognize that cultures are formed from all these many parts of the whole and their history and their now and their environment and their sexes and their genders uh their relations to you know neighboring cultures and conquering cultures right and and recognize that those recognize that like gender is an appropriate kind of access to to study or an, an appropriate point of of entry that women are worthy of being subjects of study you know by by even our own cultural standards right if you don't acknowledge that there's more than men in a culture you are leaving out half of the people and then very often children are grouped in with the women, so that's more than half. Right. You're trying to understand an entire culture by like one guy's diary. Or just what you assume is male. You're you know, you're right. Devaluing things that you might think equal feminine and therefore can't possibly be as important. Well, and it's like yeah. unless it's a really pretty piece of jewelry or a really fancy looking pot or glass vial. You probably aren't mm-hmm. going to see it. So in, unless but it's considered every art. Every single spare, every single spear point is saved, though. Oh, I know. This is why I, I have like them. issues with. Um, Although some of that, I I do have to wonder. Um, some of I it's mean, preservation yes, issues. That is saved, but textile does not preserve as well as a stone tool or a piece of metal. Right. Um, no, and I agree with you, but Chelsea. When was that doesn't have to make up the bulk of the display? Yeah, and when was the last no, 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 time no. you were in a museum and there was anything really talking about textiles or that loon? wasn't a special exhibit? Right, that wasn't something that was specifically um, set up the, for that. The National Museum of American Indian um, actually has some good textiles that are part of their you know normal exhibit. So I think they've done. That's fair. The idle jerk uh, in Indiana does yeah. that too. You know, uh, um, and, and I understand where you're coming from, and I, I feel like the same angst, but also to, to play devil's advocate a little bit, there's pre- there are preservation issues. I understand the right. preservation Although issues. I would also say some of it is we're also interpreting a lot of these things as, you know, scare points or whatever. They could have been a cooking knife. They, you know, I, I've seen boxes and boxes and boxes of scrapers. And in some areas, scrapers are formal and diagnostic, yes. but they still don't really make the exhibit. And yeah. So that's what we're still presenting to the public. And I mean, like I just mentioned the Idol Jorg in Indianapolis and how they do have beautiful, uh, full full pieces of, of Native American, traditional Native American 
I, I hate using the word costuming, but at this point, that's what they are. Regalia. Regalia. Thank you. Um, Regalia. Now, these are obviously not actual recovered pieces. These are pieces that have been made and donated, but mm -hmm. they're being displayed as a way of identifying the tribes, which is fine, but they're almost always either male dancing costumes or it's this is what the men's costumes would look like and also here's what a woman's costume might look like. Yeah, and very often it's presented as the woman's is derivative of the male's. Right, it's always the male is forward and the female is usually kind of off to the side and a little behind. And it's and, it's little things like that that irritate demurely. me. Always. Women and the women are always posed demurely. Yes. Even I mean, when they're naked. Yeah. I'm like, everybody's naked. It doesn't matter. Yeah. There's a popular historic show, and one of my favorite things was they showed all the women spearing fish in the creek because the men were all drinking beer. Right. And they were in powerful poses. I'm like, yes! This is not historically accurate, but I love it! Well, we don't know it's not historically <laughs> accurate, though. That's the thing. If we look I mean, at... Right? Knitwear. Oh, well, I... Okay. <laughs> The, the so we should get feminist accurate. <laughs> the rest of the show, not so much. <laughs> they, were, they were taking power in their position. Right. They yeah. weren't bathing sexily so that the men could watch. No, they were like, oh, this is cold. I need fish because we haven't got any elk. And let me get some lichen while I'm at it. Mm, lichen. Like, mm, I like it, like it. Nature's jerky. <laughs> well, Chelsea, any final thoughts? that we haven't touched on just yet this is like my own little soapbox is that like we you know our, our discussion of museum displays is just uh, put forward and as you know i read articles that give this token you know hat tip to feminism i think there's still a great need to center gender as uh like a, a primary concern in the research that we do and the questions that we ask and there are certainly some people who are doing an absolutely phenomenal job in that and i mean like really and truly like hats off to them um but there are also a large group of, of people who aren't and there's just so much knowledge and so much potential that it is lost by by refusing to have acts upon which our research and our questions turn. Uh, it's so, so important, especially with everything that we have going on in the world and it's a crazy, crazy time, you know, and um, I, Women's History Month is coming up and I'm really hoping that this will come out during March because women, Women's History Month. But there are so many wonderful things that, that women have done in the past that have been uh, like overlooked or swept under the rug that we have been able to discover through you know historical records and that there's absolutely no reason to think that those kinds of women didn't also exist a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago and we shouldn't be blind to their their existence Deidre any last thoughts first I want to say our main goal is to get you to never stop asking why and not only the big questions, the ones you're not thought of, like look around, look in the mirror, look on the corner, every interpretation, every reason we dig, ask why. And another is the only way that we're going to get better pictures, fuller pictures of all of a culture, you know, we're calling it feminist archaeology, call it what you will, 
not only don't ask why, but continue to involve more diversity in the study. You know, we are getting a lot of women in the field, the people of color in the field, and people of lower socioeconomic status and different differently abled persons. It's still really, really low in our field as I've experienced it. We need to continue to strive not only in our work, but in promoting, you know, archaeology to other people and getting them involved. Greater diversity of all kinds in there. And also, if you're trying to introduce feminist archaeology to someone, um, I believe it's in one of these articles, if you start reading all of them, uh, there's always the story of the professor that held, held up a recla replica of an artifact, and it was a bone with 28 little scratch marks mm. in it. She holds it up, and she's like, this is widely recognized as the first calendar. It represents one lunar month class. What do you think the purpose of this calendar is? And everyone's just silent because they've all been told to interpret it. You know, well, is it, could it be a hunting thing? We're waiting for the next full moon. Right. And right. Like, well, what about uh, a person with a uterus who's wanting to track their menstruation cycle? Right. And everyone's like, oh, my God. But mostly, I just want to say, ask why and increase the diversity of inclusion. Well, ladies, thank you very much. I think we have... I hope we have given people some more information about feminist archaeology, what it is, what it looks like, and why it's important even today. And I appreciate you guys taking the time to record with me tonight. Yeah, it's always a blast. We hope you have enjoyed the show. Please be sure to subscribe and rate our show wherever you listen. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and probably whatever your favorite podcasting app is. Remember to like and share. If you have questions or comments, you can post them in the comments section for the show at the Women in Archaeology page on the Archaeology Podcasting Network site. Or email them to us at womeninarchaeologypodcast at gmail.com. This show is part of the Archaeology Podcasting Network and is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. You can reach them at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Music for this show was Retro Future by Kevin McLeod, available at Incomptep and royalty-free music. Thanks for listening! This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, and edited by Chris Sims. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.